The talk tonight is the third part of the series I've been doing on enlightenment and empowerment. In the last two talks, I've stressed the need for us all as human beings to discover and to understand the conditions that bring about happiness for us in our lives. I'm suggesting that learning how to balance ourselves within one sitting, within one walking meditation, within one day, or within our lifetime, helps us to realize this happiness in our moment-to-moment experience. This balancing, which becomes more and more subtle as we understand it, brings about an awakened mind, a mind full of light, happiness, joy, peace. This balance can happen when we truly understand how to work with the dull times, the no energy times, the agitated times. When we can balance softness with precision, discipline with joy, or when we understand how to balance the seven factors of enlightenment themselves, how to work with investigation, energy, rapture, and calm, concentration, equanimity. When we become aware of this balancing process and discover the subtleties within this process, there is less imperative to look outside ourselves for guidance, for help in this balancing. We slowly develop an inner guide, an inner balance, which leads to a very deep inner trust. And this inner trust allows us to enjoy this process of awakening, of the spiritual birthing and journey that we're on. There's a joy in the process of awakening itself. This is a quote from Han Shan. In my former days of bitter poverty, every night I counted other people's wealth. Today I thought and thought, then thought it through. Everyone really must make their own. I dug and found a hidden treasure, a crystal, pearl, completely pure. Even if that blue-eyed foreigner of great ability wanted to buy it secretly and take it away, I would immediately tell him that this pearl had no price.
this pearl. This is this awakened mind, this home, this spiritual center that we all have a potential of experiencing and realizing. This pearl of no price is this deep, subtle, balanced mind. In regard to the seven factors of enlightenment, the first factor of enlightenment, as you all know by now, is mindfulness. It's considered to be the most important factor, just like the warp of a loom. Mindfulness helps keep refining the other, seven, the other six factors. Mindfulness is that ability to just notice what's happening moment by moment without judging, without comparing. When we can apply this mindfulness to the four foundations, applying this ability to pay attention to our body, to feelings, to consciousness, and contents of consciousness, When we can do this, we start to investigate. We ask ourselves, what's happening right now, moment by moment? This lights up the object. It brings light to the mind. When we can investigate, when we can bring this light to the object, then our energy gets stronger. We're able to be with whatever's happening in the moment. We're able to be fully present. If at that point we can continue with our moment-to-moment mindfulness, then interest arises. This is rapture. What can happen from this interest is a joyful, intense delight in the truth can happen, no matter what it is that's happening. So rapture is this intense interest in the present moment. As a mental state, rapture has the characteristic of happiness delight, satisfaction. When rapture is present, the mind is very agile, light, energized. Depending on how strong the rapture is, the body can be affected. In some experiences, when rapture is present, there can be a lot of body movement, body jerks, strange contortions. An example of how rapture can feel is if you imagine that you were lost in the desert, in the hot, dry desert for a very long time, and then you found water. It feels wonderful. 
There are five different kinds of rapture or types. The first is called minor joy. And this is when the body can have goosebumps on it or the hair stands up on our body. Or chills. It's a very light kind of joy. The second is called momentary joy. It's instantaneous. It's like these powerful flashes of joyful feeling will arise in the body. The third kind of rapture is called showering joy. It's like a flood of joy through the body and mind. It's like a wave or waves surging up and landing on the seashore. Showering joy. The fourth kind of rapture is called uplifting joy. It's more refined. Each stage of rapture or kind of rapture becomes more refined and more powerful. So this fourth kind, uplifting, the body will feel like it's floating. Sometimes the body does float. The mind feels very light as well. The fifth kind of joy or rapture is called pervading joy. It's when the whole body and mind are just suffused with this feeling of rapture. It's very, very full. One feels totally immersed in joy. Sometimes I think that when cars are driving by and people are looking out the windows at yogis doing walking meditation, it can look kind of gloomy here. It's, the practice can look very grim from the outside. Nobody's looking at each other. People are walking slowly. There's these strange shawls draped around everyone. It looks weird. People actually look like zombies. No one's talking. <laughs> and I often wonder what people are thinking when they <laughs> drive by. Some people get the impression that this practice is very grim, again, because they're looking from the outside. Actually, joy is considered to be the gateway to nirvana. It's considered to be the doorway to enlightenment. A soft heart, a very soft, open heart, is said to be what makes this joy accessible This softness of heart is the opposite of a dull or a timid mind. One way you can think of it is if you think of how a young child usually is. There's a sense of such openness and wonder and highly energized interest in whatever is happening. 
most of the people I know that are having babies at 30, late 30s, early 40s, the main uh, description they have of, of uh, parenting is that it's exhausting. It's just these children have so much energy. They're so interested in everything. And it's hard to keep up with them. When you think of this quality of this openness of heart and intense interest of a young child, one can see this type of pure exploration that's happening. It's not like a child is wanting any results from this, from this interest. It's just this total openness to discovery. There's no hidden agenda in the motivation. It's a very pure discovery that's happening. And that's what's so energizing about it. It's not what we want in any given moment. It's really just about what is. The very pure truth of any moment. If we can open to it, this is what is so energizing and joyful, is the truth itself. I went for a walk today up the dirt road that's nearby, and there's a stretch of road where the, the woods or forest is just, it's just like a fire. The leaves are so incredibly beautiful. And I was thinking, you know, of all the phenomena that occur on this earth, scientists always come up with some reason why, you know, a moth will be so beautiful or why a flower is so beautiful. But I've never heard any description of why the leaves at this time of year are so incredibly beautiful. There's no reason for it. It's just so wondrous. I really don't know anybody who can uh, put themselves in amongst these leaves and not just be totally odd and rapturous. It's very pure. There's no reason for it. It reminds me of this saying, a Navajo saying, that I like a lot because it implies a kind of grace. On the beautiful trail I am, with it I wander. It's very simple. This beautiful trail is this spiritual journey of awakening that we're all on. One way that we can arouse rapture is to actually contemplate that we're all here together, beautifying our hearts together. It's incredible what you're doing here. It's easy to lose perspective the longer you're in on retreat. How amazing. (laughs) 
that there's like a hundred people here trying to discover the truth right now and how difficult it is and that you're willing to do this. Just thinking about this can make one joyful. I'm not sure how many of you have of you have heard of Jacques Lusseron. He was in the resistance movement during the Nazi occupation of France in World War II. He was in a concentration camp from January of 1944 to April of 1945. Of 2,000 French people in Buchenwald, he was of 30, one of 30 that survived. He lost his eyesight in a school accident when he was eight years old. And he wrote that his father immediately said to him when he had this accident and became totally blind, always tell us when you discover something. It's a very uh, wise thing to say. Always tell us when you discover something. He didn't treat it like something horrible had happened. It was like an opportunity to discover. It's amazing, this shift in perspective between the child having a perspective of really losing something, his eyesight, to, oh, here's here's an opportunity to explore a whole different way of being. This is very joyful. And he found one of his greatest discoveries was that blindness is my greatest happiness. Blindness gives us great happiness. It gives us a great opportunity both through its disorder and through the order it creates. The disorder is the prank it plays on us the slight shift it causes. It forces us to see the world from another standpoint. This is a necessary disorder because the principal reason for our unhappiness and our errors is that our standpoints are so fixed. As for the order blindness creates, it is the discovery of the constantly present creation, the unfolding. We constantly accuse the conditions of our lives. We call them incidents, accidents, illnesses, duties, infirmities. We wish to force our own conditions onto life. This is our real weakness. We forget that God never creates new conditions for us without giving us the strength to meet them. I am grateful that blindness has not allowed me to forget this. Blindness became his greatest happiness. 
this joyful interest in each moment is not always complete. Sometimes we can get very attached to this joy, or it can get out of balance. We need to develop calm. Calm balances this raftness of observing power. And this leads us to the tranquilizing factors of enlightenment. And if you remember, I read from the Buddha, the Samyutta Nikaya, the other night. I wanted to read you the other half. It's called Fire, or the Right and Wrong Times. When the mind is agitated, that is the wrong time to cultivate the enlightenment factors of investigation, of energy, of rapture. Why? An agitated mind is hard to calm through these factors. Suppose a person wants to put a big fire out. If they heap dry cow dung and dry sticks in it, blow on it with their mouth, and do not sprinkle it with dust, can they put this fire out? (laughs) No, indeed, Lord. An agitated mind is not easy to calm through these factors. When the mind is agitated, that is the right time to cultivate the enlightenment factors of tranquility, concentration, equanimity. Why? because an agitated mind is easy to calm through these factors. Suppose a person wants to put out a big fire. If they heap wet grass, wet cow dung, wet sticks on it, and expose it to wind and rain, if they sprinkle it with dust, can they put out that big fire? Yes, indeed, Lord. Just so, when the mind is agitated, that is the right time to cultivate the enlightenment factors of tranquility, concentration, equanimity. An agitated mind is easy to calm through these factors. But as for mindfulness, I declare that that is always useful. very clear. (laughs) There's not much more to say about it. Calm. Coolness. It's like extinguishing a fire. The mind is no longer burning with hatred or burning with desire. I was doing walking meditation this last retreat that I did here, and I kept doing walking meditation by this fire extinguisher. (laughs) There were many times when I felt like just going to the wall and just pouring this (laughs) stuff all over me. Or sometimes someone would go by and I'd actually pretend (laughs) to squirt it on people. It's too bad it wasn't so easy to cool ourselves out. It's said to be like going from the hot sun 
to the cool shade of the tree. Calmness can only happen when the mental turmoil in our mind has been silenced. The opposite of calmness is when the mind is scattered or nervous. There's an urge to do something often or to move. When the scatteredness is present, it affects whatever appears in our minds. Harmful actions are often born out of a scattered mind, which leads to suffering. If there's calmness and tranquility in the mind, this will lead to less and less remorse in our lives. This calmness is a feeling of quiet. A quiet mind means there's very few ripples in the mind, and it also affects the body. One's movements become more graceful, smooth, and gentle. The traditional aids to calmness are interesting. The first is nutritious food, good weather, (laughs) comfortable posture, balanced effort in practice, avoiding bad-tempered people, keeping the company of tranquil people, One of the greatest aids to calmness that we have right here on this retreat is the silence itself. Often I like to remind people how precious the silence is because it is easy to lose perspective because you're here all the time. You're not moving in and out of it. So just to encourage you to keep the silence A quiet mind isn't a dead mind. Sometimes calmness is scary for people, or something that when it comes, there's a movement away from it because it's so different than the intensity that we're normally used to living with. It's so quiet. This is an anonymous old Chinese poem. My home is in the flowering mountain. My joy is purest idleness. In a rush hut by a blue grotto at the end of a crazy winding path. At noon, I take a simple meal, and when I'm full, I take my staff and wander to the mountaintop and gaze. My joy is purest idleness. This is a very calm mind. Often when teaching retreats, I notice there's a kind of pattern for people, and it's not so clear when you're in it. 
but a person will come in and report a very stormy time. And then the next time they come in, they report it's very calm. And there's a pattern to this. Usually there's, there'll be a stormy time, and when we go through it, there'll be this great calm again. And if you, if you can understand that this is a pattern, it's easier to go through. It's just stormy, <laughs> then it's calm. Even just talking about it, do you see the difference between that sense of joy, which is very energizing, and calm, which is so tranquilizing? And it's learning about this balance that's so important. Concentration is another tranquilizing factor of enlightenment. It's the ability to stay one-pointed on the object of attention and then to be able to stay there. It's a collected mind, a unified mind, a focused mind. And I try sometimes to think of a different metaphor for this concentration, but for me the best metaphor is that of a pond and when a pond is very, um, when it's windy and stormy, or even just cloudy and slightly windy, the surface of the pond is agitated. And when the surface is rough and agitated, one can't see into the pond at all. And also, nothing is reflected on the surface of the pond. And it's the same for our minds. When our minds aren't concentrated, it's disturbed. When the mind is concentrated, it's like the still surface of a pond. And when there's that stillness, one can see into the pond, one can explore very deeply. And the whole sky is reflected, all the trees, they're reflected in the stillness. This stillness of mind is so important. It's what enables us to explore. Without it, we're just constantly disturbed and reacting. There are two different types of concentration. There's what is called fixed concentration and momentary concentration. And what we're doing in Vipassana is called momentary concentration. What we're doing in Vipassana is developing just enough concentration so that we can bring our attention to the object, stay with it long enough to then observe what's happening and then to see what happens to the object. And like I said the other morning, this is not (laughs) an easy thing to do. It takes this incredible stillness and softness of mind to be able to feel the object, the sensations. And then if the concentration is strong enough, we, we need to have just enough concentration then to look at what it is that's happening. And the emphasis in Vipassana is to see how it changes. 
If we have too much concentration, we get absorbed into the object and we can't see what happens to it. When we get absorbed into the object, it often feels good. It's very pleasurable. And there's a tendency for most of us, if not all of us, to enjoy this kind of concentration. And if you can remember that concentration is very important, it it enables us to rest the mind. It allows us to just cool out, to experience peace. This seclusion of mind is very important. And sometimes it takes a kind of fierceness or firmness. Sometimes it takes softness, but sometimes if there's just endless thoughts or repeating thought patterns, sometimes it takes a fierceness to seclude the mind long enough to still the mind and then be able to see what's happening. Often this is what what brings people to retreats, is just this idea of having this rest, this seclusion from this constant turmoil. If we have enough stillness of mind or samadhi, there's space and strength in the mind to be aware of what the object is doing. We begin to become aware that there's this constant arising and passing away of objects moment to moment. Once the mind is relaxed, the field of awareness of objects becomes very important because the objects are directly perceptible through an intuitive process, not through the thinking process. When we do this, there's a possibility for intuitive insight into the body and mind. This is where the exploration happens. And it's it's possible to explore anything that happens This samadhi, or stillness of mind, can bring much simplicity to our lives. Sometimes I think one of the most important phrases to remember is just to keep it simple. It's what enables us just to take one step at a time, one breath at a time. And we often forget just how powerful one moment free from mental turmoil really is. One moment of this freedom is so powerful, it's so peaceful. And when we learn how to take one breath at a time or one step at a time, this is very practical for our lives. We learn to take one landscape of sadness at a time, or anger, or one day at a time. And this brings more ease and well-being, contentment. And this is what the practice is about. The mind is so vast. And our tragedy as human beings is when we become so imprisoned in our mental 
chatter that we can't explore. This is a quote from Reiner Maria Rilke. He said that the problem is not whether the song will continue, but whether a dark space can be found where the notes can resonate. This dark space where the notes can resonate is a still mind. So in terms of the tranquilizing factors of enlightenment, there's calm, concentration, and the last factor of enlightenment is equanimity. Equanimity is a strong mind no matter what is happening. It's being okay with all the ups and downs and bumps that life brings. It doesn't mean indifference. It means balance. When we sit down to sit, even if we sit for five minutes, we begin to see that we're really at war. There's this war going on. We're at war with things happening on the inside or things happening on the outside. We're constantly battling, and there's no peace. This is inner oppression. Equanimity is the difference between being at war with what we call inside and outside, and really being nonviolent. Equanimity is really nonviolence. It's a non-reactive mind. I remember the first time I had a glimpse of what this meant. I had gone to England to do a, a month-long course. It was in June, and I came from this area of the world, and I had this impression that June meant summer. <laughs> uh, so I didn't bring a lot of wintry type clothing, and it rained almost, it rained every day but one day that whole month, and it was freezing cold, and the English aren't known for their heating. (laughs) There was no heat in the building. It was freezing, and at some point, I remember uh, one of the teachers was talking about these type of meditations called heat meditations which is a a different type of uh, meditation than Vipassana. It's a fixed concentration type practice. And she was talking about how doing these meditations that bring about all this heat in the body aren't a practice that lead to wisdom. And I was sitting there freezing. She was talking about this during the middle of the course, and I was thinking, well, maybe that doesn't lead to wisdom, but it sure would be nice to be doing this practice because I could be warm. Uh, and I was very allergic to the building and to the rugs. And I had a bad cold. and I couldn't sit in the hall. I started to look for a place to sit where uh, I wouldn't be sneezing. 
And I just spent about three weeks just looking for the perfect spot where I wouldn't have any more trouble. I'm not kidding. I, went, I brought my Zafu from place to place, from building to building, tense. I was in tents. And one day, toward the end of the course, the sun came out. And so it was like, oh, I was so excited. And I brought my Zafu up to this field, and I put my Zafu down. And it was about 11 o'clock in the morning, and I was sitting there. And the sweat started pouring down my face, and these flies started coming. And it, it was just like, oh, I couldn't stand another moment. <laughs> and I finally started to realize that there was nowhere I could go. And it was the beginning of seeing that there really isn't any peace until you finally can stop. It's the mind that stops and says, okay, I'm just going to explore what's happening. Try to open to the unpleasant and the pleasant. This is unconditional acceptance. It's when the mind is at peace. You've probably heard of the story of the person who went out to the woods and sat by the stream and was sitting there very happy. And then after a while, he started moving the rocks around in the stream because he couldn't stand the sound that the stream was making anymore. It's amazing what happens when you sit for a while anywhere. Something's going to start to bother you no matter where you go. I bet you've tried. <laughs> I bet you've tried to avoid some things already. And that moment when you can just say, okay, I'm going to go through this. This is the beginning of equanimity. Unfortunately, <clears throat> from what I understand, equanimity is the factor of enlightenment that takes the longest to ripen. If you think of a, a flower of an apple tree or any kind of fruit tree. Equanimity is this ripening of flower to fruit to dropping and letting go. It's a very long ripening process, this being okay with whatever's happening. It's not needing to run away anymore. We learn acceptance. One aspect of equanimity that I think is important is learning this balance of openness and strength. As a child, I was quite conditioned to think of strength as being invulnerable. It's a strength of not feeling anything. And my idea of strength was that you became more and more armored and more and more numb until you can't feel anything. And I had this idea from my conditioning that vulnerability meant that you were very weak and that feeling anything, especially any emotions, was unacceptable. Meditation is a process of opening, just like a flower, and then ripening within this openness. The ripening being this strengthening from equanimity. And it feels for me that I have this lifetime koan of how to be soft 
and open and vulnerable and to be very strong and protected without becoming an armored tank. Equanimity can give us the strength to cope with the openness that happens in meditation. Meditation is a kind of delayering process. It's like peeling an onion. And what's at the core is this pearl that has no price. This process of opening and then ripening takes tremendous compassion for ourselves because initially and throughout the process we're uncovering what most human beings are working desperately hard to keep hidden, to keep covered. And what we learn so well to hide is this two-year-old mind. It's the wanting mind. I want, I want, I want. This primal yearning and this incredible aversion. I don't want, I don't want. The hating mind. And we don't like to admit it to ourselves, but this is really what's going on most of the time. And it's interesting. It's like when it's light, when there's so much light in the mind and there's a lot of mindfulness, we feel invincible. It's like when, if you can imagine the times when you've been really mindful, it's like you can't imagine what it would be like not to be mindful. You know, it's so clear, it's so incredibly clear that you couldn't imagine even losing it. And then when it's dark, when it's been dark for a while and there's no mindfulness, it's like you can't imagine what it would be like to be mindful. It's so bad, it's terrible. And what we do is that we go, we get very clear, and then it gets dark, very dark. It gets clear, and it gets dark. This process takes tremendous courage. If we were fully enlightened, we wouldn't get lost. If we were fully enlightened, there wouldn't be any more wanting or not wanting. We wouldn't get identified. There wouldn't be anything more that was sticky that got us caught. What happens is that whenever, wherever and whenever we need to work, whatever, whatever is sticky is our work. It's what we need to work on. When that happens, we get lost in it for a while. We get identified until we learn how to work with it. It's sort of like we're fools <laughs> until we learn how to work with whatever is sticky. And then it gets clear again. And this process does take this enormous acceptance this unconditional acceptance. What's important to keep in mind is that most of the time we're going to be reacting. The objects are changing so quickly, thoughts, sounds, body sensations, moods, feelings, it's so quick 
And the mindfulness has to keep up with this, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And when we miss one moment, when one moment isn't clear, say there's an unpleasant sound, if we're not mindful in that moment, the next moment is going to be aversion. It's so quick, and usually if there's aversion and we're not mindful, it shifts to extreme aversion. This is very quick, and we're caught. We're reacting. But any point in that process, we're even, if we're reacting to reacting, we can become aware of it. It's just, oh, it's just reacting. It's just aversion. It's the mindfulness that initially brings about the equanimity. It's learning to be equanimous with reacting. It's being able to admit that, yes, this is what's happening, a lot of reacting. If you can't do this, the ice doesn't melt. It's like we're these glaciers. And if we're not able to work with the aversion and the greed itself, because this is where we mostly are, the ice will never melt. And when we're with the wanting or the not wanting, and we can accept, oh, it's just wanting, it's not mine. Oh, it's just aversion, it's not mine. Then we're back in the stream again. We're we're with what is. And there's this joy in that. Incredible joy. This process, because it is happening so quickly and because we do react a lot, as we get quiet, becomes very subtle. If you're quiet and the slightest anticipation arises, if you react to that anticipation, it's like, oh boy, I'm going to get enlightened any second. And even just doing that will bring so many ripples, it'll destroy that stillness. Or, if you're quiet and there's anticipation, if you react to the anticipation, there'll be the thought, oh no, this is going to ruin everything. This is how subtle it gets. And one has to learn how to let those thoughts come and just sink in again. It's learning to be okay with everything, even the slightest bit, the slightest wind one can learn to open to, and then you sink in deeper. And one has to go through this over and over and over again to learn how to do it. So it's okay (laughs) when you blow it. It's just a lot of wind and it'll get still again. It's said that the mind of a fully enlightened being has what is called six-limbed equanimity. The limbs being each of the sense doors. So we're seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, and thinking. With each limb, there's this incredible mindfulness, this incredible equanimity. Each moment is total and okay, just as it is. And this is a mind that's no longer at war. 
It's a mind that's totally at peace. It's possible for you to do this. There's nothing more joyful. Let's sit for a few minutes and then I wanted to just read a little quote for walking meditation. It's to inspire the walking meditation. What activity is most important in your life? To pass an exam, get a car or a house, or get a promotion in your career? There are so many people who have passed exams who have bought cars and houses, who have gotten promotions, but still find themselves without peace of mind, without joy, and without happiness. The most important thing in life is to find this treasure and then to share it with other people and with all beings. In order to have peace and joy, You must succeed in having peace within each of your steps. Your steps are the most important thing. They decide everything. I am lighting a stick of incense and joining my palms together as a lotus bud to pray for your success. May you have peaceful steps.